The Academic Podcast Agency. Hey, and welcome to episode six of the Why Tell Stories podcast, uh, a podcast exploring experimental storytelling in its glorious forms and looking at the kind of the reasons behind why we as humans tell stories. And this week, as we promised, we are listening to the wonderful Gordon Jenkins' um, Manhattan Tower. I'm Daniel Clark. I'm a storyteller, story lover, and director of creative program at the Story Museum, and I'm here with the wonderful Will Hood. Welcome to episode six. My name's Will Hood. I am a documentary filmmaker, anthropologist, podcast producer, and uh, yeah, we're pleased to be back in your ears for another episode of Why Tell Stories. Uh, we're super excited about this one. As Dan just uh, detailed, this is Gordon Jenkins, 1946, and... To me, this really sums up this whole idea that we're trying to put across about experiments in audio storytelling, right? It's got all of those facets that weave together in such a, uh, an alchemistic way that that idea that the sum of its parts is so much bigger. It's got everything. This has got a beautiful score. At times you feel like you're in a room with an old movie from the 40s playing. It's got this wonderful, on the surface of it, quite uh, hammy, almost cheesy storytelling. But actually there's a melancholy and there's a pathos and there's different layers, I think, to this narrative. It's a really playful piece, isn't it? It's really uh, feels like when it was made, they must have been pushing new ground. There was a lot of exploration that happened. To add to that, I would say it's not a timeless piece. I think it's very, it's kind yeah. of dated. It's it very much dated. of its time, yeah. both in its pace, but also its musical choices. And, and you know, the in some ways, the storytelling. But it feels like a, on this journey of exploring uh, the kind of chronology of audio storytelling and sonic storytelling, it's a really interesting piece. It's a really interesting melting pot. It's certainly beautiful, if nothing else. I think just to have it wash over you. I mean, some of the, particularly Lord Buckley in the uh, last episode, I think could be considered quite challenging, right? It requires quite a lot of effort to tune into, perhaps. Uh, but this, I think, has this kind of aesthetic which kind of washes over you in a warm way. The biography of Gordon Jenkins, which I think you're reading off the back of your vinyl cover, aren't That's you? correct. Uh, details that he spent some time in New York, left and then came back after he'd made his name somewhat. Is, is that true? I think, yeah, he was rich enough to afford on these tower blocks. yeah. Unlike the previous two podcasts, I think Jenkins was a composer first and foremost, which gives it a very distinct uniqueness. He was coming at it as a musician, writing writing words to go with his music. So quite a different angle. So he came to New York originally in the 30s, looked up longingly at the towers. This is all from the back of the record. Um, and then um, in the 40s, finally got the opportunity to live in one of them came back to New York and wrote this piece. As a, as a lovely end to the story, Gordon Jenkins in the late 50s was given the keys to the city of New York by the mayor at the time for his services to New York City, um, which is testament wow. to the power of storytelling right there. <laughs> tell a good story, get the keys to the city. Why tell stories? We've answered the question. <laughs> yeah, get the keys to the city. So I believe he calls it himself... A love song for Manhattan. Is that correct? A love song to New York. A love song to New York, yeah. Okay, so Gordon Jenkins, 1946, 
Manhattan Tower. Uh, let's have a listen and we'll see you at the other end. time I saw my tower, that is the first time I saw it in reality. In my mind, I'd seen it many times before, standing by the ocean, looking out of a train window at night. Even the structure I made with blocks as a child was this same tower that long ago. My heart beat faster than the raindrops as I looked up and saw it painted against the sky. The outside of the building was as beautiful as the outside of anything can be. But the inside was pure enchantment. The elevator operator was Merlin. My feet touched the magic carpet as I ran down the hall. And the key that I turned in the lock was Aladdin's lamp. As I entered the tower for the first time, I knew that at last I had found contentment. A home that I would leave many times, yet never really leave. I went over to the window and looked out at my beloved town. The buildings were constant flames, bright and shining, stronger than the rain. And on the street below were the people that built that fire and kept it alive. Seven million keepers of the flame. The sound of traffic on a New York street creates a strange music. It is an orchestra conducted by the Statue of Liberty with the words engraved forever on her side. It is a great organ, played upon by Father Knickerbocker, master organist. I opened my tower windows wide to let the music in.
Gaiety often found its way into my tower. Night after night, it was filled with happy people. Thin happy people, fat happy people, tall happy people, short happy people, old, young, many races from many places. My tower was filled with nice neighborly sounds. Phones ringing, knocks upon the door, many conversations competing madly for attention, and the heartwarming sound of people laughing out loud. We talked mostly about New York, the concerts we'd attended, the humidity, the plays we had seen, the humidity, the musicals on Broadway, and the humidity. We had artists, we had businessmen, we had musicians, and we had a wonderful waiter, a waiter named Noah. Noah, Noah. where is Noah? Where is Noah? Where is Noah? Where is Noah? Here comes Noah now. Say, Noah, hmm? we're going to have some fun. Hmm. Empty the ashtrays. Get out some ice. Because we're having a party and the people aren't nice. Clear off the table. Order some chop. Because we're having a party. Honky-tonks, that's why New York's my home. 
got lots of shoes in the St. Louis blues, and one of our larger rivers runs by. But it hasn't got the opera in the Met. It hasn't got a famous string quartet. That's why New York's my home. Not a place to visit. New York's my home, sweet home. Hollywood? Hollywood's got movie stars and movie czars and cocktail bars and shiny cars and a wonderful climate, they say. But it hasn't got the handy subway trains. You seldom find a taxi when it rains. That's why New York's my home. Take your California, New York's my home, sweet home. So save your time and trouble. Save your railroad fare. Save your time and trouble. Save your railroad fare. Cause when you leave New York, you don't go anywhere. So, Brother Ben, you'd better stay right there. found its way into my tower. Love came through the door with a big bundle of happiness under her arm. Love walked in and took me by the hand. And the sound of a million violins filled the room. And each note that they played became a glance, or a sigh, or a kiss. Love sought out my tower like a stranger far from home. But in a little while, two strangers became friends. And we knew that no matter where the sound of music should lead us, the tower would always be our home.
Inevitably, sadness found its way into my tower in Manhattan. A sadness born of the thought of leaving. No lovers taking separate paths ever experienced more regret than I, as I looked for the last time at my adopted city. It was twilight, and as I opened the window, the music of Manhattan came whirling in, singing a song, not of the past, not of despair, but of the days to come. A clean, healthy song with words of hope and promise. A promise that someday the tower would be mine forever. Hours later, I could still hear the faint strains of this music as I sat on the westbound train, watching darkness sail along the Hudson. And as I thought of my friends and my dream and my love, my sadness left me and I began to smile. For I knew that someday I would return, that I must return. For I left my heart behind in that tower, that tower in Manhattan. beautiful wow that is absolutely <laughs> gorgeous i feel like uh in many ways i've heard it before it, it's it's got a real nostalgia to it but actually there's something else going on there it's got lots of tropes lots of um features which i've certainly heard before but all of them together feels like something still quite fresh and new right it does that mashing and the you know for me that lovely scene where he looks out where you open the window and you have the first point where sound design or sound recording comes in and then the, the orchestra yeah. become the car horns that's such a like it's such a perfect moment and it must have been so experimental at his time they must have it must have blown the orchestra's mind that they were getting to be car horns you know yeah 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 and a lot of fun as well i'd imagine i mean it's so the way the script talks to the orchestration and, you know, which is then part of the sound design. I mean, that it's a lovely line. The traffic creates a strange music, right? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't yeah. it perfect? And then they play the strange music. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, it's yeah. come from the, from the mind of a composer approaching story, which is what's so fascinating about it, I think. In 56, he recorded um, an extended version, which was three times the length. And had a lot more songs. And form-wise, it almost feels more like a musical. Um, but this, in its simplest early form, for me, is the best. Because it's, because it's so unique. Um, with more songs, it, it sort of weights it towards something that's a bit more known. But this is just almost perfect. Mm. I mean, there's something right from the beginning. I think there's something which is hopelessly nostalgic. Um, and even in the text, I think the text is quite interesting. So this idea, it was raining when I first saw my tower. That is the first time I saw it in reality. So he's already setting up this sense that it's a bit of a dream. 
and that it's a it's a little bit of a figment of his imagination right i mean do you get that there's this wonderful interplay totally. of what's literal and what's projected onto manhattan as a kind of place where dreams happen but that's and i mean that's so right because the the dream or the story of new york lives in all of our subconscious right it's been a grand piece of storytelling which has happened through multiple yeah. lenses over the last 100 years you know we all have a story of what new york is and this forms a part of it so the fact that jenkins came there with this fixed story that he was then uh, that he was then wooed by and pulled into totally yeah. makes sense yeah yeah for sure so I mean, the other thing that I get straight off the bat, um, which is all the way through, but the role of the chorus, um, both as musical element, but also as part of the script, right? So right from the beginning, Mm. it's very present. And it gives that sense of, I guess, a populated space, right? There's all those physical bodies that make up the music. But then that lovely uh, segment when the chorus actually goes through the different sections of New York, right? Calls out all the different names. And it's almost playing that kind of Greek play, omnipresent, all-seeing narrator voice. Totally. Doesn't it? Feel, yeah, it's totally the Greek chorus. And for me, that moment where they, where they all, it breaks into song around Noah, the waiter. Like, what a surreal yeah. <laughs> What bizarre moment. It is quite surreal. Yeah. Really and the whole is. empty the ashtrays. Yeah. But that that song that that returns. Yeah. This I mean again, it feels like a trope, right? It feels like you've been there before with some of those songs. But again, the way that it's woven together uh seems to me still quite fresh. I mean, I don't know about you, but I get this resolutely upbeat positivity at the beginning. But then it's mixed quite early on with this questioning uh, of actually, is this the paradise Mm. that I'm professing it to be? Right. And it's in the script and it's also in the music. I mean, it does all feel very close. It feels quite claustrophobic. But the uh, the lyrics in the party scene where uh the female voice is referring to there's this constant refra- of refrain of there being seven million people right so early on i think he mentioned seven million keepers of the flame which is a gorgeous line mm. right of the people that make up the city that keep it running but then in the party she's there makes another reference to it of seven million is too many for benny when she's talking about convincing her brother or, or cousin or someone to stay in the city. So there's this question about whether actually it's too much or whether it's amazing, right? Mm. It seems to be present throughout. Do you get that? Totally. And is it, I mean, it's it's very much the conflict of cities, isn't it? Right. You've got this kind of amazing yeah. space full of possibility and opportunity and excitement and all these things happening. But the very fact that there's so many people making things happen means that there's a lot of people. And as, you know, as humans, where do we naturally sit? It's not, it's a relatively new thing for us to live in such populated um, proximity, especially, you know, if we're talking about the, the symbology of a tower, which is, you know, you can't forget is people living beside each other and above and below, below each other. Literally 
stacked, stacked up, but then yeah, with like that an industrial this, chicken it, farm. Exactly, but with that is this beautiful iconic image, which Jenkins yeah. refers to. You know, of this, uh, of these kind of um, these kind of meccas of, of humanity. You know, this this beautiful um, rising, glowing towers. Which is obviously so yeah. seductive. You know, it's, the, it's a lot of the seduction of New York as well. So that's a, well, a fascinating conflict. I, I guess the romantic reading, you know, which is uh, plenty there in this piece, is the look what we can do when we cooperate, mm. when we're all together, right? That's seven million keepers of the flame. You know, what a, an amazing image. Mm. But then there's also, in a wonderful 40s way, you know, which is hasn't been impregnated with the um, the sarcasm and the irony of modern times, there is this questioning of actually maybe this isn't wonderful. I mean, again, that party scene, mm. I mean, it's done tongue-in-cheek, but there's it's quite cutting in a way where they list off the things that they talk about in the party and they keep coming back to the humidity. Yeah. You know, and the idea that actually it is quite oppressive here, you know, it's uh, it's not easy living. Well, right? it is an oppressive. It is an oppressive place, and, and like you say, like the the feeling and the the mood and the feeling that Jenkins creates in using the choir and the chorus in that way does create a, a, um, a claustrophobia as well in a very subtle yeah. way. Yeah, it's very clever. I think. Um, let's talk about the ending. Because the ending to me is quite fascinating. I can't really tell, and I've heard it a few times now, whether the the sadness and the melancholy that he's going through as he's leaving is whether he's leaving the relationship, uh, the love story that happens, mm. you know, moments before, but you get the sense in the timeline of the piece, you know, it's perhaps months or years, or whether it's a sadness that, the relationship between him and the tower, his beloved tower, has broken up. I, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, in the in the complete version, the human relationship is is totally built upon. Like, there's a lot more about it. It's it's really the heart of the story. But in this version, in its in its purest form, the only relationship I really get is is the narrator's relationship with with the tower itself. That's that's what he really loves. That's where the that's the object of affection in the piece. Right? Whether it was intended or not, that's how it comes across. Yeah. And, you know, maybe well, maybe Jenkins wasn't intending that, but that's really what it says to me. Yeah, I mean, you can't help but think, or I can't help but think. Perhaps the ambiguity is on purpose. You know, it pleases me that you're being mm. asked to question this idea of relationships with, uh, I want to say things, but I suppose what I'm really talking about is homes, right? And buildings, like physical totally, spaces. Totally, and Yeah, and it's it's such a primary relationship in our lives, yeah. right? And it's the, the story of a house, the story of a home. We all hold them. We all have tropes of stories um, from places we've lived that are only particular in, uh, and alive to us. I think that's why it's fascinating, because it is a story about the central character, the central protagonist, for my ears, in this story, is a tower block. You know, and then we go, and almost like the um, Chris Ware, the 
graphic novelist, did a beautiful book a few years ago called Building Stories, which is a it's a box set. It's a collection of small magazines and um, and graphic novels all around this one building and all the different nuances of it. And f- you know, I think if you if if you want a, a fun uh, fun afternoon, listen to Manhattan Tower and then read Building Stories, and you'd be like, "Wow, oh, this is." That just sounds fascinating. There. I'd like to see that. We'll put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes for sure. So uh, this idea that uh, yeah, that a physical space, a home, a building um, can be a character in a story. Are there examples of this that we? That I, I mean, has this been done before? Presumably it has. This isn't the only time this has happened. I think it comes up a lot. I mean, one of the one of the interesting examples that I think of is is the TV series Lost, you know, which m- many would say sort of lost its way. Pardon the pun. Right. I've never seen it. I obviously series. know about it. Have you not? I mean, it's, it's really it's worth a watch. It's, it was one of the the early ones of those kind of big, uh, big rolling TV series where a question sits at the heart of it and keeps you going. And um, but the central protagonist really in the story is the island mm. itself to a point that all the other characters are kind of uh, supporting actors to this island and it's never overstated but it's beautifully done i think that's that's a really good example of when it works brilliantly mm. well that, i mean that that is interesting isn't it the idea that to an extent i suppose whatever any character is going through they are dealing with challenges by their immediate environment. I mean, we're almost discussing mm. a kind of Darwin uh, principle here, aren't we? But people have to adapt to their settings and to their environment. And whilst they may be trying to, I don't know, find riches or they may be negotiating a romance, you know, there's those human stories, but there's also that physical space that it will be mm. in varying degrees challenging to them. And I'm imagining, as I say, I haven't seen it, but I'm imagining Lost is about uh, a kind of survival, is it? It's about survival, but the the island keeps throwing up these things, you know, it keeps yeah. throwing up challenges and, and uh, 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 obstacles as if, you know, as if a, a kind of a, a nemesis or enemy figure in a story would. It's the, yeah. it's the sort of dark presence that's keeping the narrative moving. I mean, that so, sounds like living in the centre of London to me. Well, it's, it is like <laughs> cities, right? And, and that's why it works in this context. You know, in, in in a very pure form, we think of character as something that is human or anthropomorphized. Mm. You know, something that is that has uh, living characteristics in a very simplified way, and we think of setting as something where the, the the characters carry out their story. But if you flip it, actually, and you look at it not from a human perspective, but from a grander perspective. Places do have character. You know, there's something unique that you can remember about each of the spaces you've lived or visited, which which are only of that place, just as, you know, the the manners or characteristics of that old guy that you just saw at the bus stop are only of him. We have to acknowledge it. And it makes for these very unusual and rich stories, I think. Mm. I mean, there's an area of, of study, isn't there? Or, or there's a name for it, which is psychogeography, um, which I've come across a few times. I don't know an awful lot about it. I believe the author will self... Um, has either written about it or talked about it quite a lot. The idea that places have a particular character, which is almost um, 
the the remnants of the life that has passed through them. And I think that's perhaps why these big cities, London, New York, you know, are so evocative because the amount of life that they have seen, if we're talking about yeah. the city as a character, yeah. you know, the amount of emotion of human existence that those walls have absorbed. Uh, and and I'm, I'm a fairly secular-minded individual in the sense it takes. Um, I, I'm not quick to to go to the to the spiritual realm with things, but it's difficult to deny that completely, right? You know, you think of a a city as old as London, the amount of lives that have been played out there. I mean, it, it becomes a stage, doesn't it? At, at it the totally very least, does. where all these things have taken part. I think there's also a normality for people that live in the city for prolonged periods of time. And I've, I've got friends who, and, and I know lots of people who, who live in a city and then will go on holiday to somewhere quiet and they almost have to play white noise to get themselves to sleep because there's not that constant frequency happening. You know, that kind of low end rumble that you get used to living in a tower block or in, or in a busy area. Yeah, I think there's a similar thing that happens with light, isn't there? In the sense that uh, I've had friends that have grown up in cities that we've spent time together in the country and they're freaked out by the yeah. lack of yeah, street yeah, yeah. light. It's the same thing. It's the same yeah. thing. It's the same thing. And it's, but I think what Jenkins does beautifully in this piece is to, is he does, I mean, he does sum it up. He does sonically capture it. But I think. We have to look at the context of when this piece was created to understand it a bit deeper. And that is, you know, we're talking about a point in time where musicals were really popular, where the, the kind of that form of the song of the, those Statue of Liberty and the Noah songs was pretty was pretty standard in popular culture at that point. Yeah. But also we're talking about, and I think we've touched on this in earlier um, episodes, that point in time when the radio was a dominant medium, where to listen to things and to be willing to take experiments in your listening habits was was expected because people were sitting, gathering around the record player, around the wireless and listening to content. Mm. So we, it's very, I mean, you know, we've now got podcasts, but we don't really have the same... It's not the same communal activity. It's either, not the same it? thing, no. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, date-wise, 1946... I mean, I think it's fair to say, uh, without having the qualifications to make such a lofty statement, but it is the golden era of American exceptionalism in the sense of they are top of the food chain at this point. The Second World War has just finished. Mm. They've been the cultural knight in shining armor that has come in and uh, restored order and justice to the world. I mean, there's some heavy cultural tropes uh, which, you know, again, you hear in this piece, right, that celebration of something quintessentially white American. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you imagine yeah, yeah. the people at that party living very uh, shiny lives, right? You know, very aspirational lives. There's a load of cocktails and, and cigarettes yeah. and holders and all it's, that kind of it's stuff. It's the yeah. kind of Mad Men era, isn't it? Of um, And again, you know, Mad Men do it very well, but that that... What I like about the Jenkins piece, what I love about Manhattan Tower as a piece is that it's got that subversive and there's only a touch of it, but there's still that questioning of uh, uh, perhaps everything isn't quite right here. Perhaps yeah. this isn't uh, as perfect as I believed it to be in my imagination. You know, there's that questioning. It really is. And it's and it's lovely to have 
that the payoff, that the sad ending is about stepping away from a place. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite unusual, you know, and it's, it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful because it's universal, right? Everybody will have left a space, a building, a home at some point and had to finish a relationship with it. So there's a there's a pathos to that, isn't it? Even if you're moving on to more exciting and better things, there's a sense of those rooms and the things that happened there, the lives that uh, were lived there cannot be revisited now, you yeah. know, and it's kind of moving yeah. of time. But it, and that makes me think of that beautiful poem, which is, I, I live not in myself, but I become portion of that around me. And to me, high mountains are a feeling, but the hum of human cities torture. That's beautiful. Isn't Who beautiful? is that? I'd have to Google it. I know it verbatim, but I, I, I can't. I, is it Wordsworth? No. Okay, not. so Look, we're, we're going to write that in the show notes. We'll so write you can in the show notes. I can't remember who it's we'll but find the credit I, for I live it. not in myself, but I become portion of that around me. And it's like, to what extent are we the places that we live in? Yes, yes. You know, and, and to what's and to what stage, like like in this piece, are we a story that's being told by the place itself? Man, so great to talk about this stuff. It's, I love this one in particular. For me, Gordon Jenkins really sums up what I'm excited about with this project, with the term experiments in audio storytelling. It's beautiful, isn't it? And there's more to come. There's such a rich bank of amazing things that we can share and listen to. Some of which we know, some of which we don't. As we say each week, if you want to talk to us, if you have anything that you want to share, be it something you've created or something you know of, get in touch. We will be back very soon with hopefully something psychogeography related. We're going to dig something out of our uh, joint archives together. Get in touch with us, as Dan says. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the email address is um, info at academicpodcastagency.co.uk. It's all in the show notes. There's an Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And if you if you enjoy this, if you're, if you're into what we're doing, share it with people you know. We want more people to enjoy this too. Yes, that's the best thing you could do for us. If you are into what we're turning out, send it on to somebody that you think would enjoy it. Make their day. Let's create a world that is full of more experiments in audio storytelling. Okay. Anyway, let's. we could wax lyrical about this all day. Well, it's lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you, man. Signing off. See you in the next one. All right, bye. <laughs>